black people still aren't trusted to run football clubs. You know, black people still aren't trusted to make decisions. So I think when and, and so when those things change, then we'll be in a good place. But at the moment, the, represent, the representation still isn't good enough. And, There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. Right, Kevil, name a football club, any football club in the Premier League or the Championship, First Division, Second Division, any football club at all. Uh, I've got to go with my home club, which is uh, Manchester United. Okay, hold on a second. That, how is that your home club? As far as I know, you're from London. I'm going to go with a standard uh, United fan answer and say that I've got relatives that used to live in Manchester. Will that sit well? Or? <laughs> Listen, you may not get an invite back to be my co-host, but <laughs> for the purposes of the show, so Dennis Walker, do you know who Dennis Walker was? I do not know who Dennis Walker was. Dennis Walker was the first black player to play for Manchester United in 1963. How on earth do you know that? I will tell you in a second. Z, same question for you. Name a club, any club at all. I'm going to go close to home as well and say West Ham. Are you from East London by any chance? Yeah. That makes I much am. more sense. You can yeah. come back. You can come back and co-host in the future. There's so many other East London clubs you can support besides West Ham. I'm not having that. All right, okay. Let's let's go another East London club then. Let's go Leighton, Leighton Orient. Leighton Orient. Okay, okay. <laughs> Trying to figure out how my alphabet works. No, we we caught him out, right. Bobby Fisher. Bobby Fisher in 1973 was. The very first black player to play for Leighton Orient. That's amazing. Are you amazed how I know that? I am. It's I'm, my... I'm, I'm, it's like it's like you're tapping into a part of your brain that you know we haven't explored yet. <laughs> you don't want to go any deeper, trust me. <laughs> it gets dark very quickly. But no, I've got to be honest with you. The reason I know that is because I am holding a book in front of me called Football's Black Pioneers. The authors are Bill Hearn and David Gleave. And with us now, we have Bill. Hello, Bill. Hi. How you doing, Bill? Nice to be with you. I'm very well, thank you. We're all Londoners. You sound like you're a bit further away. I'm from Sunderland, a Sunderland supporter, uh, living in Yorkshire at the moment. And uh, those three examples you chose were excellent. Uh, They kind of sum up how there's a danger that the first black players at each club might be lost to history. Because you sounded a bit surprised on uh, a couple of them. I'll be on. Well, I mean, to be honest, I hadn't heard of any of those players. I wouldn't have expected to hear the Manchester United one anyway. As a kid, I used to go to West Ham games one weekend, used to go to Orient games the other weekend, the alternative weekend. So got a bit more knowledge around Leighton Orient, but nope, wasn't a name that I've heard of. So, Bill, thank you very much for coming on. The, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. Firstly, I'll just say to you as to why I've invited you on. The book genuinely is fantastic. Um, I'll, I'll let you tell people the details of the book in a second. Um, 
something else that that came to me whilst I was talking to you was growing up I I'm Asian growing up I didn't I don't think I can recall ever thinking I'm an Asian growing up in this country or in East London etc but I did there were times when I thought myself as non-white and before because of that I had an affinity with with the black people around me and when it came to looking for role models etc especially with sports it was the black community that we looked to and therefore many of their successes I kind of felt part of it um and that's what's inspired me in the past and I think I, I know for a fact we've interviewed Raj Atwell who is has been chief commercial officer at clubs like Rangers Watford Coventry he said something very similar as well um so I just I just think in terms of both what we're trying to do with the podcast in terms of highlight Asians that are in the game we're also trying to look at reasons behind either the lack of and what we can do supporting them in the future but a couple of questions I ask people to start off with usually is what is your ethnic background? I'm white and British and I've got a very boring DNA there's not a trace of anything exotic uh, I think it's Scottish, Irish and English. Okay <laughs> no problem at all and how about David what's David? David's likewise um, David is married to a, a lovely lady from uh, Guyana Okay, uh, yep. David himself is white British. Okay, who does David support? David supports Crystal Palace. Ah. Um, okay, so first of all, how how did the book come about? I mean, okay, first of all, how do you know David? And then how did the book come about? Well, I worked for David for many, many years, and uh, we both retired at the same time, and we had this idea we realised that the identity of the first black players at each of the clubs were, were being lost to history. And we think, you know, if you don't document history at some stage, it's going to be lost forever. And Dennis Walker is a good example. I mean, how many people had heard of Dennis Walker uh, until fairly recent years? And Bobby Fisher as well, you know, so, and certainly Fred Corbett at West Ham. So we were worried that these, uh, these stories were going to be lost to history so we decided to document it. We knew it was a huge job. We knew it would take a long time, uh, but it's been great fun along the way, and we, we've learned a lot. Yep. Uh, from um, would you like to would you like to tell the listeners the the format of the book, just so they're aware? Yeah, we um, we've looked at the ninety two league clubs, which meant waiting until well into August to find out whether Harrogate or Notts County were going to come up into the. Uh, the football league. So we've got the 92 league clubs in alphabetical order and we've written about the first black player at each of those clubs. So we've got a little box that talks about the, you know, the date, um, the, the team and so on. And then we tell a story of their lives and they're all different. I mean, we, we couldn't anticipate that, but we found that all 92 or so just have really fascinating stories to tell. And again, Dennis Walker is a great example because Dennis wasn't just first black player at Manchester United. He was also first black player at Cambridge United. But when he retired from football, he became a hero. Um, when the Arndale Centre at Manchester uh, had a bomb planted in it, Dennis was one of the key players in uh, arranging the evacuation. Um, and it's the biggest bomb that's been um, placed in Britain since World War Two, And there wasn't a single person killed. So, you know, that, that was a, a strange little story that you would never have found out if, if all we looked at was Dennis Walker of Manchester United. 
I think what I have found fascinating about the book is a couple, one, a couple of things that you've just mentioned. The first is football players tend to move around. They've always moved around. And so you get players being the first player at multiple clubs. <laughs> and that's been one of one of the things. The choice I've had of, of reading the book is trying to decide, do I move on to the next alphabetical club or do I follow the story of the character? So it's it varies from player to player. Yes, we, we, we debated the best layout um, and we decided that alphabetical order per by club was the best way. But uh, yeah, it must be very tempting just to jump from, uh, I mean, if, if we know that Lindy Della Pena, for example, left Portsmouth to Middlesbrough, um, then went to Mansfield and Burton. You know, do you want to follow his career chronologically or do you just want to read the next chapter? Uh, I'll leave it to whatever whatever you find most enjoyable. So how I've got so many questions. So how how did you do the research for this? I mean, do people was it quite easy trying to figure out who the first black player was, or because would anyone have had records? Well, there there aren't records as such because ethnicity wasn't really recorded. And Fred Corbett at West Ham is a very very good example. He played for West Ham and Brentford and um, Bristol City at the turn of the you know, 1800s, 1900s. Um, and the, and there's, you know, the, the photographs of him are very poor, but we have concluded that uh, he was at least of mixed heritage and therefore was, was West Ham's first black player. Um, but yeah, records don't exist as such, and nor can you make assumptions. I mean, a lot of people think that Albert Johansson was the first black player in England, let alone Leeds, and yet he wasn't the first black player at Leeds either. You know, so it, it, we certainly needed to prove things. We couldn't just assume that, you know, folklore was accurate. Um, we think we've got it right, but inevitably, you know, we we get clubs telling us that. Well, we think we had a a Nigerian prince who played in his bare feet in 1920, and when we did the research, there's sometimes an element of truth. Perhaps they had a Nigerian on trial, but they needed to make the first team in order to make the book. So we think. Uh, we've got it right but you know it's uh, I mean a, a, lot, a lot of it would be looking at birth certificates um, marriage certificates um, overseas records and we can usually uh, track it down to ethnicity and and dates and and clubs. Sorry going back a little bit how do you define or how have you for the purposes of the book define black yeah, it, I mean, it's 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 great when it's self-evident, but it is a little bit uncomfortable when we appear to be sort of determining the ethnicity or colour of a person. We regard people of mixed heritage, for example, as black, if they choose to be recognised in that way. When I mean, there's a very famous player, Paul Rainey, who was at Leeds, a lot of people think that Paul Rainey was at least mixed heritage, and therefore he would have been the first black player to play for England ahead of Viv Anderson. But I think Paul either isn't or chose to uh, to, to be recognised as white. Um, but it, normally, mixed heritage would regard as black. We went for African Caribbean, and we um, <clears throat> we included Egypt as part of of Africa. So we regarded Egyptians as black. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's normally what the player chose to be regarded as. You know, we would never alter somebody's perception with the oxford united chapter we invariably got the same name cropping up time and time again but that player had chosen 
not to be regarded as black. So we we didn't regard him as black either, and uh, and and looked at another player. It's quite a sensitive area, really. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I, I can't remember which football club it was, but I think you mentioned Egyptian. I think there was one of the clubs, I can't remember which one, had either Egyptian Derby, or Moroccan Derby, or something. Derby and... County and Fulham would have been too, yeah. But what we tried to do in those cases was look at the, the next black player. Um, you know, so if if the reader decided, well, I don't agree that an Egyptian is, is, um, is black, we could tell them that for Derby County, the first black player, therefore, becomes Tony Parry. And oddly enough, the first black player at um, well Fulham would have become would have become a, a guy called Stan Horn, who was also a first black player at Manchester City. So we, we do allow the reader to, you know, to, to to take a different approach if they prefer. Yeah, well, just just on that, was, was the decision making process then about kind of categorising um, if people were black or not based on their heritage, or was it based off their skin? But a little bit of both, really. I mean, it's certainly heritage in terms of somebody like Willie Clark, who was the, a very, very important figure in black football history. Well, his, um, it was his, his grandmother that was black from, from British Guyana. His father was mixed heritage. Um, so really, with Willie, the heritage was quite distant. You know, the, the last black person as such in, in his family was his grandmother although his father was was very dark-skinned as well okay and so who was the very first black player to play for a professional league club that would be arthur wharton um arthur wharton was a, a top footballer long before well, well before the football league was formed he played for rotherham town in the football league that's not the same team as Rotherham United now, so he doesn't appear as Rotherham's first black player. But he moved to Sheffield United. And in 1895, he appeared for Sheffield United at Sunderland. And it's so long ago, it was pre-Roker Park. So, you know, they, they played at Newcastle Road then. And uh, Arthur became the first black player to play in, in the Football League. He's a, a legend now. I mean, Arthur Wharton was good at everything he attempted cycling, boxing, swimming. Um, he was a world-class sprinter. He held the world record for the, the 100 yards or 100 metres, whichever it was in, in those days. So a real sporting superstar, but very much uh, on, on his own. You know, there were, there were no black players around for a good few years after that. I mean, so do you, in terms of the society that they were playing in at that sort of time, when, when did Arthur Water make his debut? He made his debut for Sheffield United in 1895. So I think in 1895, I think it was around then that the first Asian, I'm not sure you're aware of this, played cricket for England around that sort oh, would, would of time. Would this be Ramji? Uh, yes. Yeah, I'm trying, I can't yeah. remember the rest of his name. But so, and I know there was kind of mixed things. There were some people that were a little bit against it at the time with regards to him. Um. I don't know if do you know much about the sort of what what the culture was like at the time do you think he there because I know famously at the moment we've got the was it Walter Tully is it Walter Tully yeah Walter Tull. Tull um so for our listeners who don't know that he was a black player and correct me if I'm if I'm wrong but he was initially selected to play for England because of his performances 
And then no, that, that's Jack Leslie. Oh, that's Jack Leslie. Sorry. Yeah, but but you're right. Walter Tull is a very very important figure. Walter Tull was the um, the man who became an officer in the British Army, a black man who became an officer in the British Army, and he lost his lost his life in World War One. So he is a very very important character. Jack Leslie is the man just a few years later, 1925, who got selected for England, but then mysteriously dropped. And the only reason we can see for him being dropped is is the fact that his skin was black. Yep. And at the moment, there's quite a, well, I say a high profile campaign. There's, there is a campaign to get him a statue awarded. Is that right? That's right. And it's been very, very well received. You know, they, they've, um, they've met their target and they're now planning a, a statue which will be erected outside of Plymouth Argyle's ground home park. So do you think... he, he never won a cup. Yeah. So I was going to ask, so around the time of Arthur Wharton, Wharton Tull, et cetera, as well, I guess during the First World War, um, what, sort of in, what sort of environment were these guys playing in? Because at the moment, you, I, th- I feel like we're living, to a certain degree, in very divisive times. Everyone's entrenched mm-hmm. politically, either left or right. Um, but I'm assuming that th- in those times, on, on the one hand, you would have had a lot less animosity generally towards immigrants and minorities but i know also as well jobs were hard to come by and in some of the port towns especially you had the blacks and the asians vying for jobs which which caused divisions and contentions as well yeah i mean i think if we look at the newspapers of the day the way Wharton was referred to was absolutely appalling i mean you know the 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 words used to describe him were absolutely unacceptable uh, in the current day we know that Walter Tull, in I think around about 1911, at Bristol City, suffered such bad racist abuse that the Spurs board felt that they needed to release him, you know, because they, they didn't want this sort of um, reaction everywhere he played. So people were treated in, in a, a completely unacceptable way. But there was also, I think, class enters into it well as well because <clears throat> the very first. Black International was a was a guy, a Scotsman, or um, half Scots, half Guyanan, um, called Andrew Watson. But Andrew Watson was probably the equivalent to a millionaire. And that there's not a lot of record of Andrew Watson being racially abused. So I think it isn't just colour of skin. I think there's a little bit of class enters into that as well. And in fact, in 1925, when Jack Leslie was dropped, um, three of the England team were amateurs, you know, very um, upper class amateurs who got a game for England whereas Jack Leslie didn't so I think it was a little bit more than colour. Okay what what surprised you in terms of researching this book in terms of I, I guess the first question is when certain clubs got their first black player? Yeah I think I mean what one strange thing is how quickly things move on Arsenal, for example, it was 86 years before they fielded a black player. And yet within, probably in less than 20 years, they had 10 black players in the, in the team. You know, So there was almost an avalanche at, uh, at some point. Um, the, the last proper you know, established league club to play a, a black player was Blackburn Rovers. And that was in the 1980s. So it's quite remarkable, really, that a club could go, well, over 100 years without ever playing a black player. Birmingham went over 100 years, and yet you look at the ethnicity in Birmingham, and, and that, that seems quite unusual. 
Okay. And was there anything else, uh, any other stories that, because so also for people who haven't read the book, it's, it's not just football stories you tell with quite a lot of the players. There's, they've got some quite colourful lives, which you dive into as well. Well, St- Steve McCorney is a good example. Um, Steve McCorney from South Africa, who came to England in 1956, played for Coventry to begin with, um, not not terribly successfully. But uh, as um, when he retired from the game, he ended up in a, a United States jail for 12 years for an acid attack on his wife and her solicitor. So, yes, some of them do have dubious uh, backgrounds. Um, yeah, some and yeah, some of them have seen the inside of a jail. There's no doubt about that. But uh, okay, and I mean, I'll, I'll bet Johansson um, is an example of you know, great man. Apparently, he came across from South Africa in apartheid. And he didn't really know what what rules applied in England. He'd been used to apartheid, so he didn't know if he could, you know, get on the same bus as a white person, go to the cinema. And it was very, very difficult for him. Um, Both of his parents were alcoholics and Albert wasn't a big drinker when he came to England, but he felt he needed to try and fit in with the players and uh, developed a drink problem. A great player, suffered a lot of abuse on the pitch. George Best once said of him that he's a brave man, just to step over that line and, and, and go on to the pitch. Um, but Albert died very, very young in, you know, quite, quite sad and tragic circumstances, but it was a very, very difficult life he had. Yeah. I, I guess with a lot of their, especially with the older players in terms of when they made their debuts, etc. they, there'll be a lot less information around about their lives outside of the football club. Yes, yes. I mean, if we went back to Lindy Della Pena's time, you know, we can talk about his life right from childhood up to retiring um, as a, as a TV personality in Jamaica. He, he went to a very, very good school in Jamaica as a successful um, schoolboy athlete, gymnast, and so on. Did his national service. So going back to Lindy Della Pena, sort of 19, he made his debut for Portsmouth around about 1948. We know a lot about his life. Eddie Paris in the in the early 1930s. Eddie Paris was the first player, black player to play for Wales, win, win a cap for Wales. We know a lot about his life and the life of his father as well, who was a, a World War One veteran. So, you know, we can dig up um, quite a lot of material. But if we go back to your team, West Ham, we don't know an awful lot about Fred Corbett. Uh, we know that he, um, you know, we know when he was born, we know when he died, we know which clubs he played for. But beyond that, we uh, we don't know an awful lot. Yeah, I was just, I, was, I guess it's what makes, not just the news, but any kind of media, etc. I was reading in a book today, and something I wasn't aware of, do you remember Jesse Owens, who won famously, yeah. was it 1936 Olympics? Yeah, he won, yeah. I think he retired from professional sport within a couple of years of of that because he said he went back to America and he's got to get into the back of the bus and there's no opportunities for him. And the, as successful as he was in those particular Olympics, he was still a black person in 1930s, 1940s America, which was fairly racist. Yeah. yeah. We come across that with... Um... Some of the first black players were GI babies, so they were conceived just at the end of the war 
when a lot of US service people were across in um, in England. And there's a, a common perception that these were men who had sex with English women and then disappeared. But it was actually, you know, they, they couldn't go back to America because that sort of relationship with a woman was illegal. They could go, for, go to jail for that. So there was still an awful lot of segregation and legislation affecting American servicemen. So, you know, it, it is strange to think, I mean, that's not that long ago. Um, and certainly, you know, you, you could get court-martialed if, if, if a black soldier was, was found with a white woman. Court-martialed for that, wow. Okay, so in your research, coming back to us and the scope of our podcast, etc., did you come across many Asians? No, I mean, if, if we'd rewritten the book and included Asians, only one chapter would have been different. Although I could add that um, Leighton Orient was a very, very near miss. When Bobby Fisher made his debut in 1973, Ricky Hepperlet followed not too long after, so Ricky was a, a near miss. But the only the only big difference would have been Watford, where Watford's first black player was um, an Indian. Um, his father was Indian from Bombay. His his mum was um, was white English, and uh, John Cother made his debut in eighteen ninety eight. So he would have been the first black player to play for for Watford, and he had a well. What, what's equally amazing, I think, is that he's probably the second black professional footballer or non-white professional footballer in England after Arthur Wharton. And whereas Arthur Wharton's become a, a massive figure in terms of black history, um, there's something to be said for, for John Cother, really, because in terms of Asian football history, he probably was the first professional player from a, an Indian background. He um, had a very, very interesting life, very difficult life, uh, very brought up in real, real serious poverty and whether that affected his later life. He did get into a, a bit of trouble with drinking and gambling, but he also fought in World War One. He enlisted very, very quickly, as did his brother Edwin, and they served the country. Edwin actually got promoted to Lance Corporal, which is quite unusual for the British Army to promote non-white people. So, you know, they did their, their bit, but they had a very, very difficult life, and Edwin died he's um in a pauper's grave john perhaps did marginally better but um you know the probably quite heroic what they went through um but little little remembered now really i certainly had never heard of them z you're our encyclopedia had you heard of them you know they say you learn something new every day right so that's definitely something that i've learned today and um there was something that you said earlier on about if you don't document history, it's lost forever. Um, yeah. Are you surprised that this hasn't been done on a large scale like you've done before? I know clubs normally put up uh, stories of, of their heritage and players that have played for them, but uh, are you surprised there isn't a resource out there that exists like this before you did it? Yes, I am a little bit. I mean, one um, championship club wrote only this week that they can't really do an article on their first black player because they haven't got a, they haven't got the resources, they haven't got a history department, which I think is a very lame excuse. It doesn't take a lot of effort to do an article for a, you know, for your website just to commemorate your first black player, particularly in Black History Month. What clubs have got, or some clubs have, are club historians, 
And I felt without exception, these club historians are just so dedicated and interested, you know, that they, they want to share information with people. So where clubs have got historians, Barnsley was a great example. Um, you know, they, they know these things and, and they can talk about them and celebrate them. But a lot of clubs, history isn't of any interest to them. Um, perhaps they've got more commercial interests, I don't know. But yeah, so sometimes it's quite disappointing. I mean, Watford, the um, the club that uh, John Cother and his brother Edwin played for, had an archivist called Trevor Trevor Jones, and he helped me immensely with this. And very very sadly, he died a couple of years ago. Um, so you know, I, I, as I take this forward, I do want Trevor's name to be remembered because he did a fantastic job in identifying the Cother brothers. And if anything does, you know, if, if ever there is a, a big movement to publicise the Cothers, then I think Trevor Jones is the one that deserves the, the most credit. Fantastic. We'll, we need to do a bit more research into John Cother. Did I mean, Arthur Wharton, you mentioned, was an all-round sportsman and athlete. Um, how about John Cother? Did he play many games for Watford? John was a, a very good player. He, he was um, a full-back, a very tough tackling full-back, as I understand it. He played for Watford in their Southern League days for seven years, so he was very, very well established. Um, Edwin, Edwin didn't play anywhere anywhere near as many games, but obviously both very, very competent footballers, um, John in particular, and apparently he was very, very popular with the, the Watford crowd. And oddly enough, he um, towards the end of his life, he was a programme seller outside of the the ground, and his debut was... They beat Wickham Wanderers 15-0. Those were the days. Um, that was back in September 1898. But yeah, he's uh, he was clearly a very, very good player. And perhaps could have been a lot better if he'd been more dedicated because we know he was a, a bit of a drinker. Um, so perhaps he could have been even better. He might have been the George Best of his day. Alas, we'll never know. Okay, any surprises whilst you're researching this book? Well, most chapters threw up a surprise you know you you think you're going to write that another black man made his debut end of story um but if if i use the example of lloyd maitland lloyd was the first black player at huddersfield and he was telling me his story and when we got to the end of his story he said his career was ended because he'd gone into a town one day with his his teammates and they'd played a prank they decided they'd drive off and leave him and let him find his own way back home. And it was a quite a quiet country lane. So they thought this was funny. He set off walking to try and find civilization. But they changed their mind and they came back for him. And he was walking up a hill as the car was coming back and it hit him and it smashed both of his legs. And they put him in the car, took him to the nearest hospital, put him out. They didn't stay. Uh, put him out so he could be treated and, and he never played football again and he had no bitterness whatsoever I mean, a really really nice bloke um, but yeah you, you don't expect that sort of story to come up when you're just interviewing somebody for playing for Huddersfield for the for the first time as a black person yeah real sad story okay so what is there anything that you think from the black experience that they've had over the last what century and 20 odd years that Asians can learn or is it a way of speeding up the process so it doesn't take another 120 years before there's an Asian at every single football club? 
you know, I, I thought this through and, and I don't think there is because we can never create that time in, or recreate that time in history. You know, when, when Wharton played, he was the only black person in the entire league and there weren't that many black people in, uh, in England as a whole. So we can't really recreate that situation. And there were numerically very, very few black footballers. I mean, it, it was um, maybe between 1895 and the start of World War II, there were probably only about 10 to a dozen black players. If two, if two black players played each other on the pitch, it was kind of headline news. Even in 1953, Watford became the first club to field two black players. And, you know, that, that, that created headlines. Um, so I don't think we'll ever get to, and media as well, um, quite often Jack Leslie being an example. I mean, most of the nation apparently didn't know that Jack Leslie was black, whereas now with social media, with television and so on, we, we'd know, you know, what, what colour people were. So it would be very, very difficult to recreate. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, the, the black players in the 70s, for example, said that they, were, they got no protection. They, they just said that we just had to put up with it. We just had to put our heads down, suffer the abuse, suffer the bananas. Um, our managers would simply say, well, get on with it. You know, you, you can't change the colour of your skin, so get on with it. Um, no, no, no protection from stewards or police or anything like that. It was just a fact of life. If you're black, you're going to get a lot of abuse. Um, and... You know, a bit like the Arsenal situation, jumping from no black players for 86 years to 10 black players less than 20 years later. Um, I can't put my finger on on what happened and, and why that can't be reproduced in terms of Asian players. Yeah, no, we don't, we don't have the answers either, unfortunately. Um, I just wonder whether, because I think a suggestion of yours was perhaps we should create a campaign to make John Cotham more more famous, perhaps have a statue for him as well. Because I don't, it, look, listen, if Z doesn't know, Kevil, were you aware of John Cother? That's from your neck of the woods, right? No, I actually wasn't. I, I didn't know who he was. I can't lie to you. Well, people do need role models. So I agree with you. If we could turn Cother into a, a hero and a role model for, for other young Asian kids to look up to, um, it would obviously be a lot nicer if we had a, a more recent role model you know a Raheem Sterling type of figure or a Marcus Rashford type of figure but I don't think we have at the moment have we in terms of Asian footballers there there are a few but they're few and far between at the moment in the Premier League for instance you've got Hamza Chowdhury Neil Taylor yeah and then we've got Yan Danda Danny Butt um, Mal Benning Otis Khan that's about it at the moment in Playing professionally, Z, in England. Yeah, and there's one more, uh, Zen Mohammed at Accrington. But it's like Bill says, if you have a player who's got the stature of Raheem Sterling, he makes more of an impact on the wider scale as well. And it's it's cross audiences is what we need. So we've got the players who are playing, so there's visibility. Um, but yeah, we, we, I guess once these players develop in a certain way, we can just, we can start now by shouting about the achievements as we're going along and document mm-hmm. it. Um, and even someone like John Cotter, get that story told as often and uh, as wide as possible. And it has to be that constant um, storytelling that we need to do. It has to be whenever it's his birthday or any milestones that he's achieved, 
we tell that story so it, it sits in people's heads. Mm. We could certainly talk about John Cother as a hero in terms of his very, very difficult upbringing. The fact that he got through those barriers and became a, a, a player for... Uh, the Southern League was very strong in those days. I mean, remember there was... Um, was probably only the first division. I don't know if the second had even started then. It might just have done. So it, it was one of the top leagues. Um, so he was a very, very good player. He was a war hero. He fought in World War One. So, you know, there, there is a case for saying that he is somebody to admire and look up to. That's the point. Did he have any children doing that we know of? Yes, he did. Um, and certainly as recently as 1992, I think is, I think there was a grand... Obviously, very elderly at that stage, grandchild. So I'm not quite sure if he's got living relatives. I imagine he will have, uh, which certainly I'd be happy to try and uh, try and research. Yeah, we'd appreciate it. I mean, it would be it'll make an interesting story anyway. There's, yeah, there you go. Okay, so just before we wrap up, Z, Kevo, any other questions for Bill before we start to wrap wrap up? No, I've actually. It, what I would say about this is that it's been incredibly insightful just to kind of listen and understand the different stories of every every different club. I think definitely moving forwards, this is going to be a really big thing for Asians as well. Um, if we do get to the point where every Premier League club or every League Two club has an Asian player, um, but it's just it's very inspiring. And as as you alluded to earlier about kind of that vicarious um, process of having people to look up to, and therefore gives people belief they can go and make it. I think it's really important. I think this book has probably served a lot of black players really well. Thank you. Cool. Go on, Z. I, I concur, yeah, I concur with what, what, what Kevin said. Um, what I wanted to know was um, what's been the reaction to the book from, from, from the mainstream in terms of the football family and also uh, the media as well? How have they received the book? Well, it's been really, really positive and unanimously positive as well, um, which is always you know, reassuring. Um, we got a lot of um, support from from the footballers involved. I mean, Viv Anderson's been absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, we interviewed quite a few of the players: Chris Kamara, Tony Ford, and so on. So, it has been well received. Uh, there's a lot of people looking at Black History at the moment, which is which is a good thing. Um, so, you know, there are other like the program that was on um, BBC yesterday that, that was mentioned. So, but yeah, it's been been well received and. You know, we're happy to to share it. It's been a labour of love. It's uh, and it's something we want to share with others and celebrate. Because I mean, if if we look at the example of the Chamberlain family, Alex Oxley Chamberlain's family, um, Neville Chamberlain, his uncle, was the first black player at Port Vale and uh, Newport, and we traced the Chamberlain family back to a plantation in Jamaica, owned by a, a man called Chamberlain. So it, it's pretty easy to conclude that the, the ancestors who we did track down were slaves and slave people on that mullet hall plantation in Jamaica owned by a man called Chamberlain. So when you think about the progress that's been made, that family have moved from enslavement to adulation in, you know, a few generations, but uh, you know, that, that is something worth celebrating. And Chris Kamara's family as well. I mean, one half were, poor potato farmers in Ireland and the other half were from Sierra Leone and magically the two families join up in Middlesbrough and Chris Kamara being a product of it and a very successful product so 
you know, a lot, lot, of, lot of success stories. And I often think if their ancestors could see it now, they just wouldn't believe what's been achieved. And I guess they'd be incredibly proud and baffled because they wouldn't have, uh, they wouldn't know what football was or anything like that. But uh, I think they'd be very proud. No, they would. Well said. Okay, so what's next for you and David? That's a very good question. Um, We've enjoyed doing this, but I'm not sure the Scottish League, for example, is is the next logical step. But uh, yeah, I think we'll we'll try and publicise this and and try and get this book used more constructively and helpfully, perhaps in schools um, and places like that. Um, and then decide what to do next. But we're not sure at the moment. Okay, actually, on that question, have how have the football clubs themselves been? Have they been relatively? So these are the official football clubs. Have they been relatively supportive? Have they or they not been that interested? No, not really. Um, I mean, some, well, a lot, didn't even reply to us when we were doing the initial research. Um, but we we got by without them, and uh, so I've not had any. I don't think I've had any direct contact from any of the ninety two clubs themselves, but obviously a lot from the the sort of Black History um, supporters, fans, and people like yourself. So there's been a, a, a lot of interest, but not not directly from the football clubs, no. Okay, yeah, that's a shame. To be honest, it's. In some respects, it's not a huge surprise either from from similar mm-hmm. sorts of, of conversations we've had around other things with, with the football club. So, yeah, but there you yeah. go. Okay. I, I do um, find it a bit odd because it, it's kind of a free gift. I mean, what we're saying to the clubs is, here's the story of your first, first black player. Use it in any way you want to. Now, I know they haven't got programmes at the moment because people are not going to matches, but it does seem that they're turning down a free gift. But you know that's uh, that's their choice. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Bill, um, listen, the book's fantastic. We it's called Football's Black Pioneers. Bill Hearn, David Gleed, forward by Viv Anderson, and genuinely, I've read it. You've seen my, the picture of me holding it up, and I've turned over the pages in so many. So like most of the book I've turned over the pages like for things to refer back to, etc. It's a fantastic book. Bill, thank you very much for writing it and thank you very much for coming on to our show. Thank you for having me. Right. Okay, so Darren, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Really good to be here. Okay, so joining me, Z and Kevil, we have Darren Lewis, who is now a was it assistant editor at the Daily Mirror, is that right? I know, it feels weird to say it, doesn't it? Okay, but. congratulations on your recent promotion. So all, most people will know you. They'll probably have seen you on TV. You you appear quite a lot, especially when issues around black players and racism, discrimination is there. And you're also regular on TalkSport. Anything else that you do that we may not know about? No, that's pretty much it. <laughs> okay, fantastic. All right, so... Darren, you're a little bit unusual, a little bit, in that you're one of the most prominent black faces that we see in journalism around sports, especially. Do you mind just telling us a little bit about your journey, how you, where you started and how you got to where you are now? To be honest, it was fairly um, 
it, it was it was an interesting old school journey because I started in local newspapers uh, for two years doing work experience and then working in on the news section of local newspapers and then going into regional newspapers and I was a news journalist both times in fact I worked for two local newspapers in North London then moved on to a regional newspaper and then went from there to working for a sports agency and then for the Daily Mirror so and I've been at the Daily Mirror ever since I joined in the year 2000 and so this is my 20th year at the Daily Mirror. Okay fantastic so I mean in terms of I guess look let's talk about black people in the media and stuff like that at the moment when you joined was there many black sports journalists and have you seen that number increase during your time? There weren't many black journalists no I mean there were guys who had paid the, the Rodney Hines, who had paved the way before me, was and still is doing a fantastic job at the Voice newspaper. Um, and there are now other excellent black journalists like Adrian Kajumba at the Daily Mail and Sammy Mockbell as well at the same paper, and Kadeem Simmons and Arendam Reg and, you know, Clive Petty is a news editor at the Times and there are some, some really good uh, black journalists or Asian journalists uh, in the industry at the moment. So I'm, I'm far from the only one. Um, when I started, uh, there weren't that many. Um, I was, but, but I did have Rodney that I could look at as somebody who had at least been around before I had. Okay. And, Rick, second to journalism for a second, how, I mean, I guess the same question for Asians, were there many Asian sports journalists when you started? Are there significantly more now? I mean, we see quite a few on Sky Sports and uh, various media channels. I'm not sure how it's represented in the written media because obviously you don't see faces as much. Fantastic then who've been around for as long as I can remember. You know, he's one of a number of excellent journalists who've been around. Satnam Sanghera has been around for goodness knows however long. Um, is somebody who I've always, you know, had a good admiration for his work. Um, but it is fair to say that the numbers were low. You, you always know, if you can... If you know by straight away by name who you're talking about, then the numbers are low, and um, that is still the case. It's changing as we now know um, because there are so many good, young, talented, focused, driven young men and women who are changing the landscape and are giving even younger people something to aim at. But for a long time the landscape was very bleak. And what that led to, as you guys all know, is a frustration that our voices as black and Asian people were not being heard on the big issues, but even on the smaller issues. And in terms of representation within all sports, not just football, 
the numbers were low. There were lots of stereotypes, which it was hard to break because if you're not part of the decision-making process, how can you break those stereotypes? How can you change those minds? So it's really heartening now to see that things are changing because the numbers are changing. The voices are getting stronger, louder, more confident, more reasoned, more analytical. The journalists coming up far better than I ever was who will change it even further going forward. But things right now look as so they are about to gain a bit of momentum. Okay. And what do you think has led to those changes? Oh, actually, a couple of questions on the changes. One, has it been slow, steady and gradual? Or do you think there's been a bit of a... Well, let me put avalanche. I mean, you've known me now for a long time. Do you think it's been slow, steady, and gradual, or do have you been frustrated so far looking at sport? I know you're a keen sportsman. We both have kids who play sport. When you look at the landscape, are you as frustrated as are you as frustrated as I have been in the past? I have been. I've been very frustrated. And not by several things. One has been the lack of consistent emphasis given to any kind of situations that occur. You, there's always an outcry if someone gets a banana thrown at them or something is is shouted, some obscenity, some racial obscenities is shouted at someone. There's an outcry for a day, maybe two days, and then it goes away. So in that sense, there's been a frustration and in terms of voices to articulate that clearly, which I guess is when I will interact with the media, it seems to have been few and far between until recently. So that's my outside opinion. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with that. And I think what's changing now is that people are voicing their concern at only being sought out for issues relating to race and racism when they have expertise in a number of other areas, when they can talk about Champions League football, they can talk about Premier League football, they can talk about EFL football, they can talk about tennis and F1 and horse racing and all sorts of other sports, all sorts of other issues. But instead they get called up to talk about the latest controversy and they get called up to go on one side of what? is always framed to be an incendiary debate with someone shouting on the other side about how their rights and identities are being eroded. And people are almost being set up to play a role. And people no longer want to play that role. People identify that that role is being set up for them to perform. And they're not happy to do that. And I think that's particularly important if we are going to make progress, because it's not just about seeing faces in important positions it's about the roles that those faces those people perform when they are in those positions and once we recognize the areas where in some respects we're being set up to fail then we can dismantle those frameworks and start to move forward more positively 
so yeah it, it is not just about screaming for the numbers it's not just about amplifying the voices it's about creating a framework within a, a system really that wasn't built for people like me and for people like you Okay, do you, I, I guess one of the things that in some ways may have helped has been the proliferation of various social media channels that people, like you said, if, if you don't want to go on and talk and be a particular fool guy for someone, you could choose somewhere else to go to and still have your voice heard to a degree. How How is that impacting upon sort of, well, print and, well, print journalism for you? I think the lockdown has changed things quite markedly. It's accelerated the, the pace of change in the journalistic industry because so many people have had captive audiences to perform to. You say that if you don't want to go to one outlet and be the full guy, you can go to another. Actually, I'd go a stage further and say that just as you've done here, you can set up your own outlet because we are all publishers now. We are all people with a voice, with an opinion, and with the wherewithal to be able to set up a framework within which we can articulate that opinion. So I would say that things have gone in a direction that they otherwise would have gone anyway. It just would have taken a longer period over the last six months, people have found their voices, used their platforms, developed their platforms, and are bringing to the attention of a wider public the kind of thing that otherwise would have taken a long time to drip feed through. I think about a month, six weeks ago, you wrote a pretty powerful piece in The Mirror. Um, do you think... I mean, I'll be honest, part of me still, my, I guess my mentality hasn't shifted back from everything I've grown up in the 70s, 80s, etc. A, I was surprised to see that. Were you surprised at the time that it was printed and, and promoted by the Mirror? Or, is that, or from the side that you've seen it, it's just gradual and it's acceptance and you've got the support? I actually don't know which piece you're talking about. I'm try- yeah, I'm trying to remember. It was... I've got. I've got. It's not. I, I guess you're right. If you just talk about it generally, I know the mirror is very good in that the mirror allow me to, to allow me the mirror give me the platform to be able to speak my mind on a lot of issues, and you know some people sometimes say, you know, you're always talking about race, but I'm not. But if I talk about race. I'm honest about race. That wasn't always the case. In the past, I used to, not, not even to that long, but sometimes in the past I'd be diplomatic um, because I would think about what the ramifications would be. Sometimes I didn't believe I had the status to be able to, to, to give my opinion on things. But then I eventually I, I started to realise that if I'm not honest about this, then in the same way that my parents changed what they could for me and fought hard for me, and I'm sure yours did and the people listening to this, all of our parents went through difficulties, didn't they, in the 70s and the 80s 
the overt racism and the kind of everyday racism that they literally had to deal with and just swallow it effectively. But they worked hard to give us a future. And I need to try and do that to give my own kids a future. And I owe it to them to be honest. And if some people are unhappy with me for being honest, I can live with that. I think originally I was asking about how you've written some pieces which I think in the past may not may not have made it to print. Uh, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that, I think. But certainly not in the Daily Mirror anyway. In mm. the Daily Mirror, they've always um, been very supportive of the fact that I feel quite strongly about certain issues. Obviously, one of them being racism. And they've always... I've always had the platform to be able to use my voice on that and and largely because it's important, you know, if I'm going to call for other people to use their voices, then I, I, I have to be prepared to use mine. And, and that's what I try really hard to do, just use my voice. But I think if we all use our voices together, then we've got a collective strength. And, you know, we, we, we talk about some of the other stuff that goes on around the world, and yet we work in an industry where there is still a lot wrong. And so we have to try and do what we can to, to be honest about it and change it. OK, going back to football for a second, um, in terms of what, I mean, there's been a lot of progress on the playing side in terms of the number of black players um captains representing countries etc now it's pretty much taken for granted i guess the next step is going to be to start seeing more managers and coaches would you agree or do you think it's also as important to start seeing the structure the directors and the executives in boardrooms etc i don't think they're steps i think they're all things that need to happen that need to happen should have happened years ago I think that is, is remarkable. It's not remarkable, really, because you get kind of get used to it. But these are things that we should have seen happen a long, long time ago. And I, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not saying anything that you don't agree 100% with. Uh, uh, and that isn't obvious. But you just look around and you just see that the sport still has problems that it had 10 years ago. It still has problems that it had 15 years ago. And I'm trying to think of other industries that have got, you know, similar problems, and I can't really. Football is just, it likes to think that it's made great strides, and and it keeps saying it's made great strides, but has it really? Okay, so going on to the question about Asians in football, is in everything that you've been doing for the last 20 plus years, do you think do you think there's been enough conversations about it or what do you think that is stopping the an increase in participation in professional numbers of Asians? Again, you, you 
you'd probably be in a better position to to answer that than I would because I know you work in football as well and and so you would have as much of an insight as me. What I can say is that I'm surprised that we've got to this stage and the representation is still nowhere near where it should be, certainly in terms of play. You know, within the sport, there are Asians who operate off the field in football. But the fact that there aren't any on the pitch, you know, the, you know, the, the number is minuscule. And we have Asian children playing up and down the country, you know, with talented kids, kids who should be able to find a pathway into the professional game. And we don't have that. And this is what I mean when I say that there is this myth that the game is representative of the people who are playing it, but actually it's not. And these are the things that we have to work on to change. Is there anything that you think that Asians can learn? I don't know if you can say this that's, that's in summary. Let me happen. And I'll tell you why that's a tough question for me. <clears throat> My experiences of a black man, and I get frustrated if I hear, you know, somebody who's white telling me as a black man what I could learn, what I should learn, what I should do. I couldn't possibly tell you as an Asian man what you could learn from any given situation. I don't know your experience. You know, I don't know what your... Do you see what I'm saying? I don't see the world through your eyes. It would be, I think it would be incredibly patronising of me to try and tell you, you know, you as an Asian man or, you know, anyone... Asian in the game, what they could learn, how they should go about things. And I, I just don't have the, the, the okay. skills to be able to if do I, Let me ask that in a slightly different way. If you had a magic wand and you could go back and travel into time, so... So I've got a wand and I'm travelling into time as well. <laughs> and, you're, and you're a time traveller, yep. Yeah. Um, if you could do one thing, or maybe two things, that could accelerate... The number, the number of black players in the professional game and the perception with which they've, they are viewed, what, because that's slowly changing. Because in the past, before it was, it, it's gone through stages where they can they do it on a cold, wet night in Stoke to they're only big and powerful. And now I think on the whole, black players are much more accepted in all kinds of positions. Um, with all kinds of attributes. So if you could do something to speed that up so that we could have had these conversations about black people, black players 20 plus years ago, what would you, is there something that you can think of that you could have done? Well, not really, because I don't think we're anywhere near where we should be now, you know, and to be able to answer that question properly, you'd have to come from a, a, a base where you are in a good place. That has to be your starting point, that you're pleased with where you are now and you can look back at where you were. But if you look at where we are now, the numbers, how many Asian footballers can you name, Yappy? Uh, I can name about six in the UK. Right, six in the UK. How many people have we got in the UK? You know, in, in football, 
in the UK, you know, if you can name we six, that's, that's, that tells you where we are. And, it, it, you know, you compare that with, for example, there's one black referee in the professional game at the moment, and he's not even in the Premier League. And that's my point. We are not in a good place to be talking about looking back at where we've come from. You know, black people still aren't trusted to run football clubs. You know, black people still aren't trusted to make decisions. So I think when and, and so when those things change, then we'll be in a good place. But at the moment, the, represent, the representation still isn't good enough. And we're still asking the questions, aren't we? Why are there not more Asians in football? Um, and when, when we get the answer to those questions, then we can kind of look back and reflect on the quote-unquote progress that we've made. Okay. I mean, I feel, I feel we're at least what, 50, 60 years behind black players at the moment. So... What do you mean by that? In ter- all right. So, for instance... Every, almost every single club has a black player. I don't. We've we recently interviewed Bill Hearn, who wrote the Black Football Pioneers book. I don't know if you've come across that, mm-hmm. which lists every or the first black player for every single football club. Um, and in terms of Asians, like I said, Z, how many how many do you think there have been in professionals ever? Fifteen, twenty. From the research I've done, it's around the 2020 mark. So in terms of, that's what I mean, in terms of representation, getting to a stage where every single club has had a, an Asian player in, in their history at some point, we're at least 50, 60 years away, I'd say. How does that make you feel? Personally, very frustrated. Part of that is because of my son who wants to become a professional footballer and I see his talent and I see him not given the opportunity. I'm also frustrated, I guess for others, just people like Kevil who perhaps could have played a much higher level than he has done other players who, who could. And it's just feels like a bit of a kick in the teeth. And it also, it is a frustration and I guess it's, it tells me something about society that we're a long because I think football reflects society to a degree and we've got a long way to go like you said do you think that when your son is I mean I know your son's similar age to mine so he'd be about 14 now um when he's 21 do you think that things would have changed we were taught we've been talking to a couple of people that if you were to put changes in place now and someone did have a magic wand and put in a fantastic process, scouting, coaching, etc., was was sorted, you wouldn't see the benefits of that for 10 to 15 years. So the cop-out answer to that question is in 10, 15 years, you wouldn't see anything. Or you'd just be starting to see the fruits of, of labour. Um, I think... I think things are improving, but it's still a glacial pace. 
So, and that's something that I and we would like to do as part of this podcast is to try and accelerate that somehow. I mean, the, the, forgive me for asking again, but you know, as when do other Asian parents look at going into football as a futile exercise because the pathway is just so closed up? that other sports are a better option. And I only ask that because, you know, your son plays the game. He's a, he's a very good player uh, and, he, and he has a lot of potential. I think, I think one of the frustrations is about football. Football is the national game, but at the same time, to a degree, it feels closed. I, it's difficult to know the pathway for me to put him in front of the right people. Um, and we've spoken to other people who've said sometimes because of the areas they're in, they end up playing for football teams that are predominantly Asian or whatever. And scouts have no interest in going to see those, those particular teams. They might see them at away games, but they're not looking at them specifically. Well, so they're coming to look at other players rather than the Asian players. Yeah. That's remarkable. Well, and you, you, that, that's what you've just come to terms with. It's oh, it's not something that I've just come to terms with. It's just it's something that I'm very aware of, and I'm saying that the change in that isn't happening because part of the reason is you've got no governing body. You've got the FA that look after grassroots and the national team. All the clubs in the Premier League and the EFL are entities to themselves. So nobody can tell them how they should scout. There can be suggestions, but there's I don't know if there's enough out there for people or people strong enough to make those suggestions that are going to be taken seriously. Mm. You see, you're, listen, I can listen to you all day on this because I think you're more of an education on this than I could ever be. I think as a father of a son who is looking to see where the opening is, the pathways to get into the game. It must be so disheartening to see a sport that leaves such, so little room for optimism. Yeah, there is that. And I've, I've been feeling it recently. I've, a couple of things there, and I can't remember if I've ever told you this before, but... One was I had a conversation with a scout at London Football Club. I met him in a situation that had nothing to do with football. And he said to me he had no interest in seeing my son, paraphrasing because my son's Asian. So we've got that. Um, I've mentioned to the other boys that he's been trialling with a Premier League academy for the last, for a couple of weeks. Um. And they've gone, I'm not, it's, I'm not saying it's anything to do with his background or anything. They've just gone very, very quiet. And that's more of a football issue, I think, that there's not a lot of communication. You don't get a lot of feedback as to, to what's going on and know how or what to do differently. But I'm aware that's more of a football issue rather than him being an Asian issue. Well, first of all, I'm annoyed with you that you didn't tell me that before because I'd have been saying something about that. <laughs> but, you know, 
what you're describing isn't any different to what so many people go through up and down the country. And it's a disgrace, frankly. And it's the reason why not only this podcast is so important, but voices, people using voices to, to change things is so important because we, we, we just have a game that on the surface says all of the right things, but underneath the surface has so many examples of exactly what you've just described. And you think about where we're going with this and it's hard to know. And some people, you know, I've come on here and you've said to me, oh, you're very well known uh, for your views on, on race and racism. And that's what you become known as, the person who is always talking about race, when in fact you're just seeing the issue and you're doing what you can to highlight it. I'd love nothing more than to just talk about football. You know, talk about how wide open the title race is this season. Talk about how fantastic the last couple of Premier League weekends have been. How well Manchester United played in at PSG. You know, the clean sheet that Chelsea just had against um, Sevilla in the Champions League. You know, and the fact that with Mendy and Silva they look far better aside far more secure a side and a side capable of winning the league or the Champions League than they do without them. You know, we can all talk football. We would all prefer to talk about football. But I think the reason why we are where we are is because when people say you're always talking about race, people then think, yeah, it's true, you know, maybe I should stop. And then when they stop, these problems are allowed to continue and then we get to where we are. And on the state of it, people say, oh, there's a new campaign. We're doing really well. We've made great strides, that great myth that we keep hearing time and again. But then I speak to you and you tell me that however talented your son is, the structure and the way it's set up means that he doesn't have a chance of progressing. How fair is that? It's not very fair at all. No, it isn't. Z, Kevil, any questions for Darren at the moment? No, none for me. I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying just listening to you guys talk about your uh, your son's experiences in the game, and you highlight some really important issues in the fact that um, there are barriers to entry, and certainly in the perception of people making judgments on players at any level of the game. So, uh, yeah, as you were, I'm, I'm with Kevin as well. It's been um, it's been quite insightful to hear the personal perspective that you you have on these issues. But I do have one question for for Darren. And that would be the media's role, because we tend to base or form our opinions on what we see and hear. Um, do you think on on not just on these critical issues of race that's happening right now, but other perceptions that we could break in terms of Asian players per se, could the media do something different to rather than just having the one-off article talking about it as an issue? Is there something they could do differently and how they uh, talk and um, portray Asian players? Do it in reverse, actually. I think when, when Asian players have the opportunity to speak, they should use that opportunity to highlight the issues 
that they're concerned about. Um, but it's almost a vicious circle, isn't it? Because there are so few Asian players in football that that message doesn't get out often enough. And so you only really change it and you only really get that, that loud message when there are players, enough players to keep propagating that message. Um, people look at the media and the media, the makeup of the media certainly has changed and there are more uh, Asian people within the industry with loud voices. What we need are the players to come through. I'm sure, we, you know, I'm sure you, you, you would be on a similar mind, you know, but when you've got the numbers, then you've got the, the optimism and the voice, the collective voice to be able to send a message out. I think part of the problem with players sometimes is survivorship bias. They they're there and they've gone through whatever journey they've been through. They may not realise either they've they've obviously been fortunate to a degree. I think every any profession that makes it is fortunate to a degree, but they're not always aware of all of the issues that hamper other people. And I think that's just one of the things. It's in a fairer society, there'd be less hindrances for people to overcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, in a word. Uh, um, the problem is that we don't, as we all know, live in a fair society. And there are people who want to... who don't see society as being unfair, who don't have a problem with society, who think that it's all agenda-driven and would prefer to keep things as they are. and But at the same time, you know, to be fair, there are lots of people who are working hard to change this society. None of us exist in a vacuum. And there are a lot of good people who want to work to change things. And I think all of us can just do our bit by using our voices. Okay, now I'd like to welcome Matt to the show. Hello, Matt. Hi, Happy. You all right? Very well, thank you very much. So this is Matt Tiller, who is one of the founders of the Jack Leslie campaign. Just before you tell us about the Jack Leslie campaign, Matt, I, I gather you've got quite an interesting day job. Would you like to tell our listeners what it is? Um, I, I kind of uh, develop TV and radio shows. So I've just done a, um, just before we launched the campaign and in the middle of lockdown, I did a, a Radio 4 pilot with Michael Spicer, who does the very funny room next door videos and it was a sitcom and we're making yep, a series um, to come out next year so um that's that's yeah that's that's my uh my day job okay um well fantastic listen it's i'm not sure what i've seen of you if there's anything famous let us know i've seen some of the michael spicer videos and they have been very very funny yeah they're great I, and i also i um i write and produce uh, music in my spare time so um the, the song that I wrote about Jack Leslie kind of um, partly, I'm not saying it's inspired the campaign, but uh, my co-founder Greg is a, a long suffering fan. And he, um, when he heard, learned of the story and heard the song, he, um, we got chatting and um, yeah, he's a, a very sort of driven sort of campaigning kind of guy. And um, yeah, we resolved to um, raise the money to build a statue to Jack Leslie. Okay, that's quite interesting. So the song preceded the campaign. Okay, yeah. Well, we 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 kind of um, when I learned the story, 
just off another Argyle fan, um, I was sort of so amazed that I hadn't heard this story before. It wasn't kind of, not exactly celebrated, but it wasn't told um, as I was sort of growing up. And I've been an Argyle fan. I started going in the, um, must be mid to late 80s. And um, uh, yeah, we just, you know, I guess they didn't look that far back in the history. It was all there. And, and you know, plenty of fans who, who are either old enough almost to remember or, or sort of in uh, have those sort of connections. Um, I, I don't come from a, you know, a long line of Plymouth fans. Uh, we moved there when I was very little. Um, yeah, I guess when, when you're like that, you don't look into your club's history in the same way. And that's why it's, it's amazing that we're sort of finding some of those stories now. And I think that they're relevant because they can inspire um, people today to kind of try and um, just make things more inclusive for everyone, you know, and, and learn about our, our history properly. Okay. So would you like to let everybody know who Jack Leslie is? Jack Leslie. Or was. Uh, yeah. Jack Leslie was a, a phenomenal um, sort of goal creator and, uh, uh, and striker um, for Plymouth Argyle. He signed from Barking, an amateur team, uh, in 1921, uh, the manager of Plymouth Argo, I think, was pretty forward-thinking, Bob Jack. He went and got three players, lured Jack Leslie down to Plymouth from East London sort of, uh, with, with pictures of the, of the seaside and a professional contract. I uh, probably didn't realise how much it rains in Plymouth. And, um, uh, and he really kind of established himself in the side and uh, was a, became a legend, you know, played for... Um, sort of 13, 14 years. He 401 appearances, 137 goals. He and he became you know, genuinely nationally famous. Um, you know, in in the national press, he and particularly his partnership with uh, fellow striker Scottish uh, Sammy Black. Um, they they really kind of um, cut through it seems, and because um, uh, people. Um, talk about you know it was only like third division and then second division Argyle, but the, he, he was he was well known and um, uh, he he actually was so well loved in Plymouth and by the team that he and he had such a footballing brain that he became club captain, probably the first black captain of a, of a professional side, and so yeah, he really had this you know a, a legacy that should be celebrated in and of itself, but. Obviously, the story that everyone um, knows of, or has <laughs> learned of Jack is that in 1925 he was selected for the England side to play uh, to play Ireland. Now he was called into his manager Bob Jack's office and told that he'd been picked to play for England. And you just just imagine that would, would have been pretty incredible um, for a player who sort of he'd been at Argyle a few years, but only really just established himself in the previous season as a as a you know phenomenal scorer. I think Bob Jack recommended Jack Leslie to uh, the England selectors, and he was then um, Jack told the story. He was uh, he saw the team and um, uh, another player was in it, but the the the, the press cuttings show that he was named. Uh, as a travelling reserve to go to Ireland, so in the 13 players. And that's in many, many papers. And then, mysteriously, his kind of name disappeared and he didn't travel at all. And as sort of Jack tells the story, he said that the FA then came down to, to look at him 
Um, but it wasn't to look at his football, it was to look at his face. So obviously he'd been recommended to the, to the FA selection committee. And then um, I'd be very surprised if they hadn't heard any reports at all of his colour. Um, but, and, and he was obviously named, but so maybe there were heroes and villains of this piece. Maybe some um, uh, of the FA committee were sort of far, fine and ha- happy to push him forward. And then others, you know, not so much. And um, yeah, he was denied the, the the chance to travel to Ireland and denied his his, his England chance really. And um, you know, was never selected again. And in 1933, the Daily Mail of all papers said, had he been white, he would have been a certain English international. So it's it's, it, I think it tells a lot about you know, the 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 struggle that um, people of colour have had over over the years. He Jack just got on and played this game, just sort of accepted that's just the way it was, you know. Obviously, it's very different now, but there are still issues where those opportunities are um, are harder to come by. So I think it's still a, a story that, that needs to be told and, and learnt from. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, it, it's a sad story in many respects. Um, yeah. Just curious, how... how... So do you think he just got selected for England based on a recommendation? Is that how it worked? Was it, were there managers back for yeah, England? England back it, was, it, it was, it was, it was a lot less formal than it is now. And um, yes, there were, you know, um, you know, different divisions, but the, the, um, so, you know, most would have been um, well-known um players from the the big teams but Bob Jack the Plymouth Argyle manager was a real sort of football man and well known and um yeah it was still slightly kind of archaic and haphazard and um you know even the sort of captain of that team that played Ireland was was an amateur and apparently not of international class at all so when people kind of say you know um there are people that will just go oh he was third division played for Plymouth Argyle he wasn't good enough well um the reports that that I've seen in the press and I'd even spoken to a 95 year old who saw Jack play would suggest otherwise. Um, and, um, I, and yeah, it, it, it was a lot less formal and, and, and people say, oh, how could that, how could um, um, the FA selectors not have seen him play? Well, it's not like it is today. People don't, scouts don't travel around to, you know, all the, the various matches and you don't have kind of TV reports. Um, you know, you'll have the stats um, and you've got this manager who's recommending his player saying, look, he scored. Um, I, th- I think um, in the uh, very sort of small number of games, I think it might have even been um, five or six games, Argyle scored something like 33 goals and eight of them were scored by Jack. So, um, um that they were on this phenomenal run that actually did capture uh, attention. So, so you've got that kind of recommendation and stats, and and here's this manager going, give give my lad a chance. You know, he's he's worth a look. Um, and and it's only then after that that, um, um, you know, when they discover his heritage that that things that things change. So, you know, it, it, of course, it was very very different. The game was only kind of you know it being professional for a few years, but it was still kind of finding its feet in that sense. And certainly the international side was, um, you know, 
still a long way from you know what it is today yeah so what 13 years before the first world cup even right uh, well, the first World Cup was 1930, but... Um, oh, is it 30? Yeah, but I don't think England even took part in that. Um, funnily enough, um, in 1924, Argyle did a tour of South America with, with Jack in the team, and um, they played both Argentina and Uruguay, who contested the first World Cup final, and, um, and beat them both. Um, <laughs> They did lose them as well. They played a few matches, but but in the film, you might gloss over that, you know. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, it's amazing that it's been what? So, Viv Anderson made his England debut in, I think, 78, which 53 years. So, potentially, there could have been a black player playing for England 53 years before Viv, Viv Anderson. It's one of those sliding door moments. You kind of wonder how different the game could have been, could have evolved if if Jack Leslie had got to play. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I kind of see it more. Um, uh, obviously, it would have been a breakthrough moment, but I don't think it would have been seen in that way had it happened at the time. To be honest, I think that it would have been more about a positive impact for Jack, who, you know, had he had that opportunity and then been able to grasp it what might have happened might he have played many matches for for England and I think that's for me that's what it's about it's that opportunity it's it's um um saying that here's someone who really deserved a a chance and and was denied it and you know uh, I, I think to have that in um you know our footballing history would be significant whether that would have made a big difference in you know, the 60s and 70s leading up to Viv Anderson's um, selection. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it would have cured all the ills that happened back then. No, no, you're right. I guess it's just one of those things about the ripples it would have created. And I think yeah. with Viv Anderson, obviously there was, someone had to make the decision, both the manager and the FA, I guess, would have been involved in terms of we're going to put a black player into an England shirt. Whereas if it happened in 1925, it wouldn't have been the first one and, and therefore. But no, I, I get what you're saying. Um, okay, so tell us, tell me about the campaign. What, what are you campaigning for? What are you trying to achieve? Well, the, the main aim is to raise the funds to build a statue of Jack Leslie outside Home Park, Plymouth Argyle Stadium, of course. The Theatre of Greens? Um, sorry? The Theatre of Greens? The Theatre of Greens, absolutely, absolutely. Theatre of Dreams and Theatre of Greens. Shattered Dreams, mostly. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, and it'll be the first statue at the ground, and um, it, it just feels, um, yeah, what a fitting sort of start. Uh, and, um, and yeah, so we, we launched um, the campaign uh, in at the start of July, and, um, well, the actual the campaign was active um since the start of the year and we've been talking about it since last year but um uh, we obviously put things on hold because of the uh, pandemic and then you know um you know the the protests happen after the terrible events in america and then a statue comes down in in bristol and suddenly people are aware of this campaign's existence and we were getting national attention and you know we weren't going to get that again so we felt we had to launch. And what was great about it um, 
um, was that in amongst all this kind of division, it felt like a really positive story that we were doing something that is constructive and um, that that can celebrate Jack Leslie's achievements, but also remember what happened to him. And um, people did seem to embrace it. Football fans, both in you know, in Plymouth, Plymouth Argyle fans, you know, around the country as well and the world, but also other football fans and foot, footballing groups and just people who found the story captivating. So we, um, we actually hit our target in the six weeks and, um, and we've, we've continued to fundraise because the, the £100,000 target was, was basically, this is, we can build a statue now, but building a statue is, we want it to be as good as it possibly can be. So um, uh, the, the, the more the merrier, really, because it's a, you know, it's a constructive project, construction project, and we want it to be, um, you know, we want it to look as good as it possibly can do outside the, the stadium, you know. Um, so, you know, people can still donate. If they go to jacklesley.co.uk, you can learn about the, the campaign. And, um, and, and, and yeah, we're, we're, we've been very busy through Black History Month, um, whether it's sort of podcasts or um, educational work, doing stuff in Plymouth with the local museum. So it's sort of had ripples beyond um, the statue itself, which is great. Okay, what sort of support do you get from both the club itself and from Plymouth Argyle supporters? Um, the club, uh, well, the, the club's been incredibly supportive because we actually we were in touch with the club last year when we first started talking about the campaign and they said, look, we're, we're about to name the new boardroom um, in the, the Mayflower grandstand, the new grandstand after Jack Leslie. So were they going to do that anyway? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And we were delighted to hear that because um, the club up to that point hadn't done much to um, celebrate uh, Jack. And as I say, when I was a fan in the eighties, nineties sort of, you know, um, uh, growing up, we, we didn't hear anything about um, Jack and his and team, which were probably the most successful team in our girls' history. Um, so, so yeah, we kind of put said, well, look, we'll, we we didn't want it to feel like a kind of pressure group on the club, especially when they were embracing Jack's story themselves, the new um, ownership um, uh, under Simon Hallett and the team there have been very supportive, um, you know, um, in terms of kind of helping us facilitate the campaign but also you know Simon's come on to our kind of um sort of channels and and uh, and talked about it and openly sort of put out statements to support it so um yeah and and they in terms of actually getting the statue in place we you know the conversations that we're having with them they're just totally constructive and um um kind of they're very respectful that it's a, a fans project um and yeah um it's it's been great so far so um and the green army yeah they've been brilliant because all the various kind of um groups uh, the fan groups have you know a time when you know football fans can't get together in the way that they would want to um have got together and backed uh, the campaign you know putting substantial amounts of money in and um and even kind of the the devon clubs got together and uh, the fan trusts sort of put uh, put some money in so Exeter and Torquay put their yeah <laughs> and Plymouth put their rivalries aside 
It's nice to hear. Mm. Okay, so a couple of things. Firstly, well, I assume that you were surprised at how quickly you hit the target. Were you surprised you actually hit the target? Because 100K is a fairly substantial amount. But we were always, you know, um, there's always a concern, particularly, you know, in circumstances as they are right now. But I think because we were able to spread the the word sort of country and even, sort of, you know, worldwide, um, it, it just generated a huge amount of support. You know, we, we had nearly 2,000 um, supporters um, for the campaign putting in, you know, some people putting in a pound, two pounds, while other, you know, bodies and companies and individuals have put in much higher amounts. And, and we we think that's brilliant we appreciate every every single penny because people have looked at it and gone look like this this is an incredible story it's something that you know in a, in a time when there's so much division let's look building something positive um has really captured the imagination and uh, and we've been really moved by some of the the messages that have come through as well and yeah it it, it really kind of took off and um uh yeah we did think oh will it take longer than six weeks it might be a bit of a slog but actually the momentum just stayed and we kept on getting you know bits of coverage and companies coming in and wanting to support us so um yeah and um we'll happily um uh, talk to more if they want to <laughs> help us out because uh yeah well i think we'll, we'll, we'll be the statue will happen but i'd love it to be as as big <laughs> and as impressive as it possibly can be okay so at what point will you is there a target in terms of time where you're going to say okay at this point once we've reached this date whatever money we've got we'll then make a start um we, we we're, we're starting the kind of planning and in terms of um you know making uh, choices on who's going to uh, sculpt it we're going to put out a brief at the start of november we've had lots of people get in touch and people pitching designs and some very very um good ones but we want to reach out as far and wide as possible and um and we really want um you know someone who is passionate about the the project and em- embraces it for all the right reasons um, and someone's going to work with us and most importantly the jack and leslie family there's three granddaughters we've um, been speaking to on a regular basis have been fully supportive um and yeah we want them to be happy you know so we're it, the decision on you know what it's going to look like is is going to be a combination of you know obviously um uh the the campaign team kind of working out the the shortlist and um um you know re- reaching out to those uh, uh sculptors but 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 talking to the family, going right. Do you, do you think these should be the you know we're narrowing down to these three or five? Is that right? And then and then um, making the final selection with them because that's um, that that's crucial. Obviously, we'll, yeah, we'll be talking to the club as well and the all, all the other interested parties. But it's the and, and unfortunately, everyone that we've spoken to who, who who's been a part of this our sort of committee and stuff, you know they feel exactly the same, you know, they don't want it to be their decision. They want it to be, you know, collaborative. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that the, that the family is, um, you know, happy with what we're, what we're doing. Okay. And in regards to the campaign, did, 
Did you start the campaign and then along the way figure out what you'd need to do regarding statues and contacting family, etc.? Or was it contacting the family and a, a bit a bit of both because we'd already been in touch with the family because we had planned to launch back in April before the pandemic hits. Um, so we'd been talking to the family for some time. Um, we'd done some research in terms of other statues. There's, there was, there's been other crowdfunded statues in uh, Plymouth, but also talked to some other football clubs and sculptors who've done similar projects um, just to get an idea of like, what kind of figure are we going to need to do this? Um, which is why we came up with the 100,000 minimum um and yeah it wasn't sort of plucked out of thin air it was okay it's sort of this this is the the basically the minimum figure we were sort of going 100 let's hope to get to about 150 because that that's the kind of ballpark for a really good sort of bronze uh statue that um other similar projects have um uh have put outside football stadiums or other pieces of public art so um so yeah, that's so we were, to, but but what we hadn't done because we then had to launch, you know, in a bit of a, a flurry. We didn't have all the plans in in place or selected because you know we needed to raise the money first. Um, we had lots of sculptors get in touch, and we you know kept all those details and some um, pitches, and we'll be going through them all now. We needed to focus on the money. It was it was all about for six weeks hitting that target. Okay. And once once you are successful and the statue's up, et cetera, what, what are you hoping will kind of be the legacy for that? Do you think it's something that'll be talked about frequently in in sporting circles? Do you think it will have a wider a, a wider audience than just Plymouth Fire Girl fans in the long run? I hope I hope it does have a um a wider appeal. I mean the story certainly feels like it has and and we'd love um there to be kind of legacy educational um uh, projects that could go out to schools we're doing stuff with the local museum the box um which they're 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 putting on some activities over half term and they've unearthed some amazing photographs as well of uh, jack that were you know glass plates that nearly ended up in a skip from a house clearance so um that's one one of the you know great things about the campaign is that things like that have been unearthed as a consequence because Jack Leslie's story is out there. Um, people are kind of looking out for that stuff and, um, you know, people have got in touch with, you know, memories or their, you know, their granddad went to see Argyle in the twenties and, and always talked about Jack. And so, so, um, so yeah, I hope that it resonates and the, the statue is something that, um, you know, hope, I would hope that the unveiling, which we hope, will be towards the end of next year because that would be sort of fitting as it's the centenary of Jack signing for Argyle. Um, So let's hope we're able to have some kind of event. But yeah, I think it'll be next season because we will need the time to actually, you know, uh, get the thing built and, um, um, you know, uh, that will, that will be a, a long, uh, a long process, but um, I think I think that's pretty quick in in statue terms, actually. But um, yeah, it sounds yeah. it. But I guess you'd also want people to be there. Yes, at this moment in time, is not looking likely. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I don't want to do it in, you know, just just 
you know, four, four of us, you know, stood two meters apart. Yeah. Doing doing a statue unveiling on Zoom is not my plan. Um, but uh, yeah, so we'll so we'll just have to see. Let's 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 just hope by you know late next year we're in a a better place. Just out of curiosity, just going back a little bit, has has anyone from the FA looked into if there's any records of that time of any conversations that were had or anything? But the the FA hasn't. I, I mean, I um, I've done a bit of digging myself, which is quite tricky to um, do because the records were closed off. Um, I never expected to find anything. There's, there, there isn't anything in the FA records that, um, not surprisingly, because what happened, and this was reported in the press, the um, the press association, one paper, I think it was the Daily Herald, um, uh, asked the question. They said, you know, was it Earl or Leslie? Because it was a guy called Stan Earl who, who travelled in the end. And... Um, um, he said that they said the press association were adamant that Leslie had been picked, but the FA were he, he were adamant that he hadn't. They said no, it never happened. But the, the name was released. It went out into many many papers. Um, so what? I'm sort of halfway there at the moment with the FA records. Uh, I've seen um, um, a report of the printout and interestingly there seems to be some confusion in the various minutes that are over several weeks of October um, around the um, uh, the traveling reserves but um, but no mention of Jack Leslie but that's not really a surprise because these were printed um, minutes not handwritten so um, yeah done after the fact d- done after the fact so so not a surprise um, uh, not a surprise at all, but um, my, you know, f- for me, the the reports that are in the the press um, and the fact that his name was printed, at, you know, in m- several papers um, uh, and the sort of controversy that's reflected on in the, the Herald that I mentioned there. Also, there was a a, a local paper, a journalist said, um, uh, about the kind of controversy. He said, my, my pen is under a ban on the matter. So it's interesting. There, there's kind of, there's there's allusions there. And if you put that, combine that with Jack's own telling of the story. Now, Jack Leslie, one of the great things about this campaign for me in particular has been finding out more about Jack Leslie's character. Obviously, I spoke to the granddaughters and they told of you know, their lovely granddad he was a really sweet guy humble told them stories and never really talked to them about football um i didn't kind of big up his achievements but then when you talk to the people that he looked after the boots for at west ham you know trevor brooking and clyde best you know he was incredibly humble he didn't even talk to them about his footballing achievements with them so uh that his testimony to me, is not someone who's trying to kind of big up his achievements. He was just telling it like it was. Just that's what happened. And he didn't make a big fuss of it, but his, his granddaughters say, you know, it obviously upset him. But it, it, he, it, it, was, it was just like, it was just one of those things. It was just like, well, that's a fact, and I'm going to move on and play my football. Because there was no one else to talk to. 
Yeah. Who's he going to, who's he going to talk to? There were no other um, black players at the time, certainly not in 1925. Um, yeah. It was just, you know, he, he, the way he said it, it must've been like, they thought I was foreign um, or that they found out I was foreign. So um, which is reflected in the attitude that many England fans had, fans had, you know, in the sixties and seventies, when you know maybe around the time of Viv Anderson's selection, you know, there were England fans who kind of had that feeling about having black players in the team. It, it was it it was to to them it was as if they were. You know they they weren't properly British, and you know we think that's nonsense now. Which and, and of course it is, but that that was the view that was expressed openly back then. Yeah, no, you know, it's it's it's, it's um, a bit interesting to sort of particularly you know obviously for black players it actually playing things that things have changed, but you're obviously um, doing this because you want to encourage. You know, people from wider backgrounds, from the Asian community, to get involved in football, and it's a similar kind of issue of inclusion, isn't it? Yeah, I was. We've just been speaking to Darren Lewis, and I was just saying to him, I think Asians are probably about fifty, sixty years behind. That's yeah. part of this conversation came about. I think I mentioned to you. We also interviewed Bill Hearn, who was one mm. of the co-authors of. Football's Black Pioneers, mm. which is a fantastic book. Yeah, and, and I've got that Bill has been incredibly helpful and really interesting that um, his chapter on Jack and when we were talking to him, he said when they started um, researching the story, they thought surely, because obviously they'd heard the Jack story, they said they, in the same way as I did, I th- at first I thought, oh, there's no way a Plymouth Argyle player could have really been picked and he said, that, well, they, they looked into it, did all the research, and yes, they can't see any other reason. It is true. Yeah. <laughs> so um, their, their Bill's been really, really helpful, actually. Yeah, no, Bill's he's fantastic. And his knowledge is, is encyclopedic, I think is yeah. the way of describing it. Um, yeah, so, I mean, part of the reason we spoke to him, we were just, we're obviously toying with the idea or thinking one day we'll, or someone will do a book about Asians in football, similar to that one. And yeah, yeah. Saying, I think that's going to be at least 50, 60 years away. I mean, hopefully sooner. So anything we can do to speed that up, we will do. Um, and to be honest, it's one of Bill's suggestions. He suggested that we might consider a statue and his, his nomination was the Cotha brothers who mm. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they were the first Asians to play professionally in England and they played for Watford in 1895. Wow. So part of the reason I'll be honest for inviting you on is just to kind of pick your brains a little bit and just seeing how you started all of this and and what's happening. And perhaps it's an avenue we'll explore as well. I think it's great to, um, uh, if you find a story that that you think deserves to be told and to celebrate to be celebrated um in whatever way you feel you you can you know um and if you um yeah i, I still don't know what how we we sort of 
decided to do it. We just thought we'd do it. And then we, um, <laughs> then we went for it. Um, we obviously were, were lucky to have, you know, found a moment, but I think it's also about um, reaching, reaching out to all the kind of various communities and bodies, which we, we did both before and sort of during the campaign. So um, whether that's, you know, um, um, the PFA and the FSA and the FA who've all um, um, come on board. Um, it, it's, yeah, and um, uh, using every single uh, contact that you possibly have to to get the story out there and, and try and find a, find a um, you know, obviously it's, it's, the circumstances that uh, that happened for us were um, very different to many other statue projects, but those, those, you know, have still been able to raise the, the the money. So if if there is a kind of a date that you can hang it off, or um, um, some event that that you can use as a kind of starting point or a platform, but it's always good to work towards. Um, something is your kind of starting point and, you know, have the campaign running for whatever time you want to, um, you want to do it. But I'd just say, um, um, yeah, go for it because pe- people are keen to hear these stories and, um, uh, you know, if you can reach out to the, the, the wider community, the football community, the Asian community, then um, uh, I'd hope that you would, you know, I'll support it. And I'll, I'll, you know, we're people, people like us who are doing these kind of things, you know, we, I spoke to people who were involved in, you know, um, Walter Tull and the Arthur Walton foundation. People are always sort of happy to, um, help and pass, pass stuff on because it's all, you know, they're not, you know, I don't think Jack Leslie is the only story. There's other stories to be told. No, I'm sure there are. I mean, and that's one of the things that's so fantastic about Bill's book is mm. well, there's ninety, there's ninety-two stories in there, isn't there? So, mm. well, it, there, there is a um, a Plymouth Argyle story that I haven't um, had chance to do much research into. But there's a guy, um, a, a guy in his eighties, got in touch with us and said, "Oh, have you had come across Charlie Twistle?" He said he was a Plymouth Argyle player that did play for England. In fact, well, I think he played for Great Britain in the Olympics. So the amateur team, he was an amateur and then um, signed professionally for, for Argyle. And um, from the, the small amount of research I've had time to do, I think he, he, was, um, he was born in Singapore. So if he's half Singaporean or maybe half Malaysian, I don't know. Um, yeah. Don't quote me on that. But... Um, Certainly, he was um, the color of his skin was noted, um, and um, uh, one thing that this 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 guy who who had been to the games said that he didn't he didn't last very long at Argyle as a professional because the other players wouldn't pass to him. It was very different to what Jack's experience was. He was obviously hugely successful and well loved in the team, you know, becoming captain and forging partnerships. Um, so I thought it's interesting when you look at the, um, you know, 
what things were like in in closer to modern times it, it's sort of much more overt i think um so um, i can certainly believe there's truth in that story because i mean football as a game was a very different game it was in obviously when it started in the 1800s it was mostly about dribbling 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 mm. and you lost possession someone picked the ball up and they dribbled so and over time obviously it's become a passing game and i think was that how i think that's what scotland kind of invented didn't they and and I think the English went too pleased when, when Scotland first beat them because they were passing the ball around rather than dribbling. So, Yeah, well, that was sort of covered in that um, Netflix drama, wasn't it? Um, the uh, English game, um, the sort of development, the, the Scottish professionals kind of coming down and um, uh, sort of creating a new, a new I haven't, style. I haven't um, watched that, to be honest. I did read many years ago, Inverting the Pyramid by oh, Jonathan someone. Yes. Which was yeah. a history of football tactics, which was a brilliant book. Mm. Can't remember his surname, Jonathan. <laughs> well, Google will. Well, Google, yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I, um, obviously this would have been sort of, I think, late 50s, 60s. So um, it, it would have been a passing game. And obviously, um, I, I don't know um, um, the ins and outs of, of, of that, but it's an in, interesting story to um to learn about that he was a guy that did you know play in some sense for the the national team um uh albeit as an amateur but in the olympics and yeah. um and, do, we, do you know when that was approximately um i think it was late 50s early 60s okay um, but he's called charlie twistle yeah um, and yeah I'd, I'd i'd love to know i've not found that a huge amount but um in, interesting story um and um yeah possibly an example of you know um someone not really getting their their chance for for different reasons to uh to jack yeah no i mean any information you find out let me know if i find anything out i'll obviously get in touch with you as well sounds like a job for for bill really yes yeah 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 Um, um okay so what Okay, so as well as spreading the news, would you like to give the name of or the details of the website again? Uh, yeah, you can find out more about us on jacklesley.co.uk and um, how to donate. And um, uh, yeah, and find out more about about Jack. It's definitely um, worth getting Bill um, uh, Bill's book because, um, yeah, Football's Black Pioneers, they've been really helpful and it's great, full of amazing stories. Yep, they, they have been fantastic. Okay, excellent. Matt, thank you very much for your time. It's definitely given me some food for thought. And I wish you all the best for the campaign. And I have am following you on Twitter, etc. So I'm sure I'll keep updated and I'll keep our listeners updated as well. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having me. A pleasure. Excellent. Thank you very much. Bye. Right.